Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 5. 1 Timothy, chapter 5. We're going to close out this chapter, Lord willing, today. I have a joke, a uh, standing joke with, with our Connect group that uh, I always have a goal of how far we're going to get, and we usually get about a third that far. Uh, so I, I blame that on them because I have a goal and I get through it when I'm up here. But somehow in small group, I can't, I can't make myself do it. So we hope to get through the end of the chapter. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and pray together. Lord, thank you for your word and that it's true. I pray that you would, by your spirit, use your word to minister to us this morning. I pray that we would sit under your word, that we would be submitted to your word. I pray that you would receive glory from our time, that your spirit would move in our midst and uh, we would be sensitive to him and responsive. Pray that you would accomplish what you would have us accomplish this morning. We trust you and we look to you in Jesus name. Amen. As I was preparing this message this week on a whim, I went to a Christian news website, Christian post. Dot com and just to see, and sure enough, within the top three or four stories on that uh, website was a story about a pastor who had fallen into some sort of immorality, and there were lawsuits about it, etc. And uh, it was just a test to see, and uh, it kind of confirmed what I already suspected that we we hear a lot of stories about pastors who've fallen into some sort of scandal, whether it's uh, regarding money, maybe they've Maybe they've been uh, stealing from the church or they've somehow figured out how to uh, get part of the offering directly to them or something or some other uh, sort of sexual misconduct or abuse of power or maybe abuse in general, some false doctrine that they're teaching that leads them into uh, some odd teachings and some odd lifestyles. And I was wondering, are these are these kind of problems that we hear about exclusive to our age or are they more frequent, more common now in our day than they used to be in? I don't think so. I don't think so. It, we've been looking here in First in Timothy, and and uh, Paul has been talking about this church in Ephesus and what's going on there. And if you think about the sort of scandals that they were dealing with there in Ephesus, all the the, the things that were going on, um, crazy teaching that was happening. There were um, there were uh, these doctrines they were teaching that were false. They were foreign to Christianity. Um, they were fixated. These teachers were on false uh, speculations on vain discussions. They, they really uh, thrived on the controversy. Some of them had stopped paying attention to their conscience at all, and, and so their consciences had become seared and, and callous, and they, they weren't responsive anymore. And they, had, they had denied their conscience. And at the same time, some have become conceited, and they crave controversy, and they crave quarrels, and, and others have gone after love of money and decided that, that uh, godliness is... Uh, a means of gain, financial gain in their lives. And, and so, in, in short, some of these men who were leaders in the church there in Ephesus, they had actually made shipwreck of their faith, is what Paul says. And so they had, they had uh, pursued these lines of thought and these other things uh, to the extent, to the point where they have essentially ditched the faith. They have, they have cha- exchanged the true faith for another faith. And that, that's what they've done there. And so... So Christian Post didn't exist when Paul was writing this, but he, he would have been able to uh, click on the front page there and see 
some of the top news stories and, and uh, the elders there in Ephesus would have been uh, one of the top stories with the things that were going on there. So it's not, not something that's uh, exclusive to our age. It's kind of common throughout the ages. And so in light of all these issues and in order to guard against their happening, Paul wrote in beginning of chapter 3 here in 1 Timothy, the qualifications for overseers of the church. And we went through there and we talked about those in detail and their character qualifications mainly. He should be like this. He should avoid this. He should have this kind of character, this kind of home life. These sort of uh, things should be true about him and his character, right? And so those those issues were very highly set up there in the first part of chapter 3. And so these are these are supposed to be the character qualities of those who are to be involved in church leadership. But in our passage today, we're going to look uh, at, at this issue of eldership a little bit more closely, and we'll begin to get a better idea of what kind of work an elder is supposed to be doing. If you remember that passage that we looked at in, in chapter 3, it focused mainly on the, char- the character qualities. What kind of man is he to be, to be in church leadership? And it just mentioned in passing he should have the ability to teach, he should be able to teach, but it focused on his character. Well, in our passage today, he's going to shift gears a little bit more and talk a little bit more about uh, what an elder is to be focused on doing. And so with all of that intro, let me read beginning uh, in chapter 5 from verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. We're going to start at the top of this passage, verse 17 there, and look at payment of elders, payment of elders. First of all, he he, he says there that uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Who rule well. What does that mean? Does that mean the one who's really good at his job? Or maybe he rules well with an iron fist. What, is, what does it mean there? Well, I, I think part of what uh, the way we can understand this is by the first word after the comma. I think every one of our versions, translation says especially, right? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. And that word especially there, I think literally every one of our translations translates it as especially, but it actually has two meanings. And it's interesting when you look at the commentators, the commentators all say, no, it doesn't mean especially, it means the second meaning. And yet you look at the translations and they all translate it as especially. So it's very interesting. And the, the Greek word is malista. I don't even know exactly how to pronounce it, but that's close enough. But it has two possible meanings, right? The first possible meaning is, uh, uh, would be, for example, like this. I like all junk food, especially chocolate. 
All right. So we've got all junk food. And do I like all junk food? Yeah, I do. Right. But what about this one little sub sub part here? I really like that part. Right. So I like all junk food, especially chocolate. Right. So the the especially part is one little subset that is even more true than it is for the larger setting. Right. So that's the first use. And that's that's what our Bibles have translated it as especially. But there's a second one, and, and it's, a, it's a usage more to specify more clearly what is meant. And here's, here's another example. I am tempted by junk food. Well, particularly donuts. Okay? So you see that there's this whole broad category of junk food, and I said I'm tempted by this junk food. Well, but more particularly, I'm tempted by donuts, not really so much by saltine crackers or or, uh, you know, candy bars or whatever, right? These things don't really appeal to me. I said, I said junk food, but I, I really meant this part, donuts. That's what I really meant, right? So you see, that's a slightly different thing, right? And it's that word that's being used here for the word especially. Now, I don't just go into that solely because I like grammar and I like definitions of words, but I go into it because I think it makes more sense of our paragraph right here, of our sentence. So, this second meaning, which again I think is a is a, 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 a clearer meaning, it makes more sense of the passage, would read like this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. That is to say, those who labor at preaching and teaching. What does he mean by those who rule well? Well, he means those who labor at preaching and teaching. That's what he's talking about there. That's what they're main ministry, their main work of ministry is to be for these elders, is to be preaching and teaching. That's their main work. And so he says, he says, let those who rule well, and by that I mean those who labor at preaching and teaching, be considered worthy of double honor. And so the way to rule well in a church, the way to run a church well, the way to operate a church well, the way to shepherd a church well, is to preach and teach the Bible. And I that's what he's saying here in our passage. And so that made me think right away of our church. We've got three elders and we have two pastors. And uh, the two pastors are elders also. And then we have a lay elder. So Bill Kristoff is a lay elder and Woody and I are both elders. And then uh, Woody's a pastor and, and I'm associate pastor. So how does all of that fit into this passage? Well, our main work is to be preaching and teaching. Right. And so as elders, we make certain decisions. We meet together and talk about various things and vision and planning. And we make various decisions together. But our main work, the main focus of what we do is ministry. Ministry, meaning the preaching and the teaching of God's word. That is the heart of what it means to shepherd a church. And so Woody and I are both employed to do that. We have we have been paid so that we're not out trying to make a living and then also trying to be full-time preachers and teachers, right? We're not trying to, to make a living on the side and, and, then, and then here be, be elders, right? Uh, Woody and I are both employed in doing this. Bill, on the other hand, Bill has secular employment, secular income that he does, and then he, he comes in and helps us as a lay elder in making decisions and teaching in various places, and, uh, and the three of us are co-equal in that sense. We're all three just elders. But the main ruling of the church, this is the point of our verse here, the main ruling of the church, the main shepherding of the church is to be the preaching and the teaching of God's word. The best way for an elder to shepherd the flock is to teach and preach the Bible. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. That's what he meant. And then he went on to commission the disciples. And if you remember the Great Commission, we talk about it a lot. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them, teaching them, teaching them. That's the main work of the ministry. So to rule a church well, to shepherd a church well, is to labor at preaching and teaching the word of God. So the next question, what is the double honor that he mentions here? Let them be considered worthy of double honor. Well, it's honor that has two parts, right? The first part of the honor is the respect that's due the role of preaching and teaching God's word to his people. There's a respect that goes with that, right? And so these elders who are ruling well, they're spending their time preaching, teaching. The, the, one, the, the ones who are governing the church the way it should be governed, they're worthy of this first respect, this first honor, right? Which is the respect that's due, the work that they're doing. The second aspect of honor is double honor, right? So two parts of the honor. The second aspect is financial compensation. It's remuneration for what they do. It's payment for what they do. Paul likens the hardworking elder to an ox who is treading out grain uh, or to a laborer. The laborer deserves his wages. The service of the, the care for the congregation and Bible teaching is worth paying an elder for doing. In fact, he should be paid for it. It makes sense, right? If he's paid for it and freed up from having to find outside employment to feed his family, etc., He's able to give more time to the preaching and teaching of God's word. He's able to give more time to what ministry really is supposed to be about. Not just a little on the side, but his main focus being that. So he should be paid in order to free him up so he can focus on the discipleship of the church, which is what we're really talking about. Preaching and teaching God's word to the church is discipleship. So the elders are charged with the spiritual nourishment of the church, and that's best accomplished by Bible teaching, by preaching, It's best accomplished by elders who've been freed from the need to find outside employment to support themselves. And so he says they are worthy of double honor. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so I've labeled this protection for elders. Protection for elders there in verse 9. So I want to look at it a little bit more closely. And ask the first question, who brings a charge? Who, who can bring a charge against an elder? Well, he, he says there in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He refers back to Deuteronomy 17. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 says this, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Sounds like a good policy, right? If someone's going to die for their crime, you better have good evidence that the person actually did the crime. Makes sense, right? Well, Jesus repeats a very similar thing in Matthew chapter 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so the purpose of this is to eliminate personal attacks, personal vendettas brought against an elder, right? And so he says in verse 19 here, back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two 
or three witnesses. Now, who can bring a charge or an accusation against an elder? I didn't really answer it, did I? The answer is anyone can. Anyone can bring a charge so long as they bring with them other witnesses. So so long as it's not just their personal vendetta or their personal belief that they go after this person, right? But they, they, have, they have others maybe who've seen whatever this sin is, is and they, they go with them together and you have two or three people saying, hey, I saw the same thing happen. I can vouch for that. It really happened. Now, sometimes, like, for example, this, uh, when, I, when I opened up this news story and read about this, this pastor with the scandal going on, it was, it was they were numerous uh, happenings that were just one-on-one. And so there were no other witnesses. It was just the pastor and this other person. There were no other witnesses. So what then? Is the person stuck? Well, no, the person's not stuck, right? Uh, if, if someone is sinned against by the pastor, right, there are certain, certain uh, other effects that happen in their lives, right? And the people around them and close to them can verify those effects and could be witnesses in that situation. If there's, a, if there's an abuse situation, for example, the person being abused should not feel like, I don't have any other witnesses, no one will ever believe me, I can't talk to anybody about it, I better just be quiet. They, that should not be the case. They should be able to go and talk to people, of course, talk to their parents or their spouse or those near them and be able to confirm this kind of stuff, right? Maybe talk to a counselor and, and, and confirm what's going on and be able to establish beyond just a he said, she said, be able to establish, no, this really happened, and here's why I think it happened. And I have a couple of people who are going to go with me on this issue and say, no, I believe it really happened because of these things. Okay? So uh, the, the, the person who, who has been sinned against in this news story is not out on her own. Right? She, she can gather witnesses that way, even though no one visibly saw what happened. So who can bring a charge? Well, anyone, as long as they have witnesses to go with them. Right? This eliminates personal vendetta. It eliminates personal attack. Which brings me to my second point here. In what context? In what context can uh, charges be brought? Well, let's read it again there in verse 19. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So in what context? Well, first of all, it's one thing to say accusatory or derogatory things about a church leader in a private conversation, right? Or when you're talking to a friend. That's easy to do. It's simple to do. It's another thing entirely to have to provide proof and evidence that will then be judged by other people. You see, we just up the ante, right, by, by making that the case. Now it's not just me fussing about something. Now I'm thinking, I have to be able to prove this. I have to be able to uh, document this maybe. I have to be able to bring this before other people who are going to look at the evidence and say yes or no. So it's going to cause me to think a little bit before I say what I'm going to say. By requiring accusations against elders to be made in the pre- presence of certain other people, namely the witnesses and the elders at least, Paul has effectively provided a certain degree of protection to elders, protection from unwarranted attacks, protection from personal attacks or personal grievances, right? Or just uh, uh, one person wanting, uh, maybe, maybe they don't like this person and they really want to get them out for some reason. They've been protected from that because there need to be witnesses. There need to be witnesses. I wonder why, why Paul would do this. 
The command that we read in Deuteronomy was for everybody. Anybody who's being tried for, you know, to, to be put to death, there have got to be other witnesses. We've got to prove this, right? That's for everybody. That's not just for church leadership. So why does Paul reiterate it here in this context? And I believe it's because he realizes that, that church leadership is a very easy target, a very easy target for these reasons. First of all, elders tend to be somewhat public. I'm standing in front of you, and you're looking at me now, right? You all recognize my face. You all have some impression of what I'm saying or what I've said in the past or what Monty said about me working out in his obituary. You know, so you have these impressions, right? We're, we're somewhat public figures, and so that makes us easy targets, right? It makes it easy to attack us because everybody knows us and everybody has an opinion about us. And you could probably find someone else who has a similar opinion about us, right? That's first of all. Second of all, a charge against an elder is often assumed to be true or maybe assumed to have a kernel of truth in it, even if it's proved to be completely false, right? It's assumed to be true. Well, they wouldn't say that about that guy unless there was something going on, right? And so there's a little bit of an assumption of, of guilt or some kernel of guilt just by the charge having been made, even if it's proven to be completely false. Also, I would say that the world loves to hear accusations brought against elders, against church leaders. They just eat it up. They just eat it up. When you, when you look at any uh, news organization or think of late-night comedy, right, how often have uh, church leaders who have been accused of such and such been, been the, the, uh, the butt of jokes? Often they're, they're proven to be guilty of such and such, but the, the world just loves, loves to see God's church be attacked that way and his, his leaders uh, to be um, accused of scandals. So the world loves to hear that. I would also say if an elder is accused of some awful thing, and then even if, it's, if he's completely cleared, completely 100% cleared of all wrongdoing, he still carries that stigma with him. For years, he'll carry that. His credibility is called into question everywhere he goes. His integrity is doubted, and his ministry can be devastated, all by an accusation that was groundless. So I think this is why Paul brings this up, and I think it's why he establishes certain protective criteria to provide protection for the elders of his church. And so for these reasons, God institutes certain safeguards to protect the elders of his churches from personal and ungrounded attacks. That raises the question, what if he is guilty? What if he is guilty? Which brings us to verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There are protections in place designed to ward off unwarranted accusations and attacks, but there are times when the charges are true and the elder is found to be in persistent sin. I say persistent because of the uh, the, the tense of the word here, it's, uh, mine says to persist in sin. It really just says to be sinning, ongoing kind of sinning kind of context. And all of your, all of your translations are going to say something along those lines that this, this isn't just a one-time sin. This is something that the guy is involved in, right? It's an ongoing sort of thing. So when a charge is brought and it's found to be true, the elder is to be rebuked publicly for his wrongdoing. That's pretty heavy. Who wants to sign up to be publicly rebuked for their sin? 
that's a, that's a big deal. And so this, the penalty for elders in sin is also increased. Just as the protection was increased, heightened, so also the penalty for the sin of elders is heightened. Let me give you, let me give you some uh, examples here to talk about what's kind of the difference between a, uh, a, like a one-time situation and an ongoing kind of situation. Example number one, let's say an elder gets angry at somebody in the congregation and they say rude and sinful things to that person. That's a bad deal, right? That's not a good thing for sure. It's sin. Well, his sin is relatively simple and it's personal and it can be dealt with personally and privately, right? It's not a big deal. I say rude things to so-and-so. I sin against them in my speech. I can go to them and deal with it on a, on a personal basis and not have Woody stand up here and rebuke me in front of everybody for having lipped off at somebody, right? You see that? Example two, let's say an, an elder is found to be having an affair. That's a big deal. And that's probably something that's going to be dealt with in a much larger and much more public way. So it's a, that's a big deal. And that ongoing persistent kind of sin is what, what Paul is talking about here. If he's found to persist in sin, to be sinning, to be an ongoing kind of sin, then the result is a public rebuke, right? Something that happens in front of the congregation. But just as the protective measures are heightened beyond the norm in the case of elders, so also the penalties for sin are heightened. An elder persisting in sin will need to be rebuked in front of the whole congregation. And why? What's the goal? What's the desired result? The second subpoint there, the desired result, the intended result for this kind of public rebuke is that the fear of God would fall on everyone else, especially the other elders. Man, you see that guy get rebuked for that? I don't want that. I don't like that at all. I'd hate to stand up there and be, be, be called out for what I've done. I think I better clean up my act a little, right? I don't want that kind of uh, that kind of rebuke. I don't want that public kind of dealing with my sin. So I better deal with my sin quickly, get it taken care of. So there's a fear of the rebuke, and there's also a fear of sinning, right? Fear of sinning. It 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 lets us know what the stakes really are. That they're very high, and it's not just between me and Jesus. There's a church involved here when you're talking about elders of a congregation. Seeing this rebukes, this rebuke leads people to fear the same kind of consequences in their own life. They don't want that to happen to them. And so it leads to them uh, walking in greater fear of God in that sense, that understanding the stakes are very high. So the penalty for an elder's sin is high, and it's designed to instill a proper fear of sinning in all who witness it, especially the other elders. There are special benefits that come with being an elder. Payment for services is, an obviously, uh, is obviously a benefit of uh, working hard at preaching and teaching, as well as the honor and the respect that are due them. Another benefit is the heightened level of protection from uh, false or unfounded or malicious accusations. There's also a special level, a heightened level of accountability that's appropriate for the position. And all three of these factors need to be in place in order to guard against abuse by or of the elder, against the elder. And if there's a breakdown in that system, it doesn't take long at all for destruction, for the problems to start showing up. So 
what this means is that the risks are high. Anytime we consider putting someone in place as an elder. If we have the wrong person ruling, we've got the wrong guy in the elder position, then we've got an issue. Teaching and the, uh, preaching the congregation is what he's supposed to be about doing. And uh, if, if he's the wrong guy because of these other reasons, it doesn't take long for that destruction to, to show up. So since the stakes are so high, the Bible spells out the process of selecting a new elder and how it should be carried out. So let's look at verses 21 and following. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying out of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later, though also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. So the first point to keep in mind is the importance of impartiality. Again, we're, this, is, this is us in the process of considering a new elder. What should it look like? First of all, impartiality is very important. The presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels calls to mind judgment day. That this is a big deal. This isn't just a little decision that's only going to affect the here and now. We're talking big time stuff in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. Right? Judgment. This is a big deal. This is God's house. That's how important Paul thinks this issue is. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, this is this is deadly serious stuff that we're talking about. It's not a small matter. Keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. We don't just choose someone as an elder because we like them. Nor do we reject somebody from being an elder just because we don't like them. We can't do that. That's not the way we make those decisions. He says, he says let us not prejudge. And prejudge is the idea of making the decision before you have the facts in. Right? And the facts that we need to have in, I refer you back to the beginning of chapter 3. The first seven verses there in chapter 3 spell out what kind of character this guy is supposed to have. Flip over there to chapter 3, if you would. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So these are the qualifications for elders. You can't always determine these right off the bat. It takes a little bit of time. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so these are the criteria we look at when we're looking at a new elder. And you can see the standard is high, very high. And so we can't just make decisions beforehand. I can't I can't look at someone and know how they measure up here. It takes a little bit of time. So impartiality, we can't just appoint a man to be an elder because we like him. Or 
uh, because we like what little we know about him. We need to be impartial and we need to get to know his character. And verse 22 has a caution for us here. It says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. We need to proceed with caution. We can't just grab a guy, lay hands on him, meaning ordain him, making him, make him an elder. We can't just do that right away. That's not something we can do quickly. If we were to do that, grab a guy we liked, make him an elder, and he turns out to be a scoundrel, like these guys, the elders in Ephesus, then what he's saying here is we take some of the responsibility for his actions. We grabbed this guy, and we told you, the congregation, this is a good guy worthy of being an elder. And then he turns out to be something different, all right? Maybe he likes to steal money, I don't know. And you trust him because we said he's an elder. And somehow he gets himself worked into your finances, and he ends up with your money. That's kind of on us. Right? Yeah, he's, he's the bad guy doing this, but we're the ones who told you he's safe. Right? So there's a big deal here. There needs to be a little bit of, of caution. So we try to be impartial and we try to be cautious when we look at an elder candidate. We meet with a candidate several times, talk to him, ask various questions over a period of time. Not just very briefly, but over a period of time. We want to see maybe there are some red flags in his character or in his family or in his teaching in his life somewhere. We want to find these things out. We also send out a letter to the congregation so that the congregation knows the person we're considering and they have opportunity to give some feedback regarding this. We might even send letters beyond the congregation to those that, uh, who maybe are in the community, someone they know, someone connected with them, business people, etc., to see maybe he seems like a really great guy here, but he's a, he's a shark in the workplace and, and people hate him or whatever. We need to know that kind of stuff before we make a decision. The idea is caution. We need to move slowly on these kind of things. And I know uh, it can be uh, possibly a little bit uh, befuddling or frustrating when you, when you look at some of the decisions, um, the speed with which the elder board makes decisions in certain things, and you think, man, can't they just move a little faster? And we could probably move a little faster on some things. But when it comes to choosing people, appointing people to eldership, we're very cautious. And it's passages like this that tell us to be cautious. We don't want to jump at it. We want to go through it methodically. The process takes time, but it's crucial that we go through it. We have to use a great deal of caution before appointing a new elder. And look there at uh, verse 23. My version has parentheses around it. And I think, that's, I think that's a fine way to understand this because why in the world does he say what he says right here? He says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Why does he mention that here? Why does he mention it at all? Why isn't it later on with personal stuff or earlier on with personal stuff, but it's right here in a discussion of elders? Why is that? Well, there's some discussion about it, and I'm, I'm not certain why he did it, and that's why my Bible's not certain either. That's why it has parentheses around it, because, well, it's there, and it's part of the original. Why exactly there, I don't really know. Maybe uh, maybe uh, it's because Timothy thought that, you know what, uh, purity says I avoid that entirely. I'm going to stay entirely away from alcohol and not touch it ever. Uh, and particularly, he was living in Ephesus. And things we know about Ephesus, it was a wild and crazy place. Right. I mean, we've already we had instructions that I just read about an elder. They had to be careful to say, don't let the guy be a drunk. Apparently, there were various guys who were drunk who would want to pursue such a position. So it's a big deal. Right. Maybe Timothy was thinking, you know what? 
Better part of wisdom just says, stay away from it entirely. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to touch it at all. Or it could be that uh, these these false teachers, remember, they, they f- uh, forbade the eating of certain kinds of food and, and forbade uh, marriage and other kind of things like that. Abstinence from that stuff was best and it was more spiritual and that's what they were teaching. And maybe he... Um, Maybe that was part of that. Maybe he was influenced a little bit by that. And he thought, you know, maybe they're right on this alcohol issue. I don't know. I'm not sure which. And maybe there's a third option, maybe a fourth option. I don't know exactly why it's in here. But whatever the case, Paul tells Timothy to stop drinking only water. Apparently, Timothy had some sort of an ailment, some sickness, that drinking wine would make his stomach better, would help him with his, with his ailments, whatever it was. I don't know. Uh, but Paul thinks it's a good idea for Timothy to stop abstaining entirely from wine and have a little bit. It's good for your stomach. And so that, that's what he tells Timothy because of this illness that he has. Now, he does say a little wine. He doesn't say, have at it, brother. He says, drink a little wine. Use a little wine for the good of your stomach. Right? So there's moderation at stake here. That's, that's what he's talking about. Talking about moderation. So he commands him to look after his health better than he's been doing. He's been abstaining to the point that it's making him sick. And he says, he says, your balance is a little bit off here. It would be better for you to have a little bit of wine and lose maybe this bragging right or whatever. Change a little bit in this position of what purity is. That's why I've called C there purity clarified because it's not necessarily defined by abstinence from alcohol particularly in Timothy's case with the sickness that he has. And then in conclusion here, the last couple of verses, the last part of the paragraph here, verses 24 and 25, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So these verses sum up why we should be cautious, because some people... You look at them and you know right off, just, just from knowing them, you know what their sins are. That's what it means by their sins go before them to judgment. You know, if, if we were to have a meeting here concerning, uh, you know, Joe Elder candidate and, uh, and we all knew him and we said, you know, the guy is a drunk. Yeah, he's a drunk. We all know that his sins came before him to judgment. We already knew it. Then when he comes in and we say, okay, Joe Elder candidate, uh, tell me about, uh, your relationship with alcohol. Well, I drink a lot of it. Kind of addicted to it. Okay, we knew that, right? We knew it beforehand because it was, it was very conspicuous, and we all knew it. Some people, they come forward, Joe Elder candidate, man, it seems like a great guy. We have no idea, and we don't find out until much later about the sin in his life. That's kind of what's being discussed here. Time will tell. A man's character and fitness for eldership are not always obvious. We need to take time to get to know the person and find out what these things are, what his life is like. And if we don't do that make him an elder, we end up being somewhat accountable for what he does later on because we told you to trust him. Time will tell and thoroughness and caution are in order. So in conclusion, appointing elders is a delicate process with high risks and God takes it very seriously. Paul takes it very seriously. And the problems that Timothy was dealing with in Ephesus were very serious. And so we take it very seriously also. And one thing is clear from the passage. It's vitally important to choose the right men to be in the spiritual leadership and spiritual governance of the church. There's a vast difference between running an organization, between running a business, 
and running a church. In an organization or in a business, you're responsible for the bottom line. You're responsible for how you run it, etc. too, but the end responsibility is the bottom line. The responsibility we have are for men's souls. That's a big responsibility. It's a big, big deal. The task of an elder is spiritual guardianship of the congregation, to disciple the congregation by preaching and teaching the Bible, and that's a big deal. So in order to do that better, they are worth compensating so that they can be freed up to invest more time in their preaching and in their teaching. And in order to protect them from unjust attack, they are given a certain degree, a heightened degree of protection in order to ensure that they maintain high moral character, they're giving a higher degree of accountability also. So you see the stakes are raised. It's more, it's a, it's more of an issue. We're giving this guy a lot of responsibility, so there's a lot that goes into it. In order to ensure that we select the right men for the position in the first place, God has given us here in our passages uh, certain guidelines about being impartial, about being cautious and about being thorough, because time will tell. So I realize I've just talked for 40 or 45 minutes to um, the majority of you are not elders and are not thinking about being elders, and um, so what's the point? (laughs) How does this relate to you? How does this relate to you? So I've got various application uh, uh, ideas here. First of all, pray for the elders. You can see... The importance of the position, the importance of the task of preaching and teaching. We've we've been given the responsibility of, of discipling a community of believers. We're not running a business. We're not just trying to make good decisions. We've been given care of your souls. And so the task that we have is 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 heavy, it's weighty, it's big, and it's bigger than us. And we require God to work. We require it or else it won't happen. And so we ask for your prayers. Pray also for any elder candidates that come along. When we consider a new person for the, for the position of elder, pray for that person. And pray for the whole process, that we would go through this, that we would look at everything, that we would, that we would think about all sides, that we would be impartial, that we would be cautious, that we would be thorough, that we would do as we need to do with this person. Because we're going to elevate him to that position where he's going to be preaching and teaching, he's going to be responsible for discipleship, and we're going to lay hands on him and say, this guy is safe. Trust this guy. So we want to make a good decision in that regard. So that's, first of all, pray for us. Second of all, value the preaching and the teaching of the Bible. Those are the main tasks that we as elders have been given. And that's the main way discipleship in the church happens, is by the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And we talked about the trellis and the vine. We've talked about it many times and read through it a few times. And elders, we talk about it quite a bit. And there are others of us who talk about it. It's a a book that talks about what is real ministry. When you boil it all down, what is really ministry? Because it's not this building and it's not the pews and and it's not a Sunday morning. What What is ministry really? Well, ministry really is taking God's word to people, praying that God by his spirit would do his work in them. That's the bottom line of ministry. And so that's what we do. And so Point number two of application, value the preaching and value the teaching of of the Bible. It's key and it's central. It's the bedrock of ministry. Thirdly, submit to the preaching and the teaching of the Bible. 
This is just as true and just as important for me as it is for you. I need to be submitted to, I need to be placing myself under this so that it is making the decisions about me, so that it is revealing things about me and not me sitting in judgment over it. So submit to the preaching and teaching of the Bible. They are the means that God has given for the discipleship of the entire congregation and for, for each of us individually also. Fourthly, if you have a legitimate case that an elder is in some persistent sin, you need to bring witnesses and we'll talk about it and we'll get it resolved biblically. The protection is not to be ironclad protection. It is not so that we, ha we have... Uh, attained a position for life when we're like Supreme Court justices and, and we're here until we die and we're protected from, from everything. That, that's not the case. It's just that any accusations, anything brought, needs to be done in a very particular way. And we, we want to know that. We're desirous to, have, uh, to, to maintain the integrity of the elder board. We're desirous that we would meet these qualifications. And so uh, that, that's what we pursue as a board, and we don't want there to be a great gulf fixed between you and us so that uh, complaints that you might have or you think, ah, so-and-so is in sin, I really need to deal with that. We don't want that to be impossible for you. We don't want to be unapproachable. It needs to be done this way with witnesses, etc. And the things that you bring are going to be determined whether they're true or not or whether they're relevant or not or whatever. That's, it's a big deal. But I want you to know that we're approachable in that regard. We'll get it resolved biblically. Also, as a, as a point of application, I would say be, be cautious about how you let yourself speak uh, about church leadership, keeping in mind that we're easy targets and that the words that you say can influence other people. So, so be cautious. There, there are times when, uh, when we're frustrated with people and, and we want to say something against them. I know that various elected officials in our country, I might sometimes say things uh, just out of the blue, right? And probably these people are never going to hear what I said. But uh, our congregation is not 308 million people. Our congregation is relatively small. And so the influence we have when we say things about other people, uh, just general people in the congregation, but particularly church leadership, they go a long way and they carry a lot of weight. And you can, you can really uh, create some real problems just by n being um, something less than cautious with the way you speak particularly during times of frustration or, or things like that. And so likewise, be careful how you let others speak in your presence about church leadership because it's the same thing. You're just kind of perpetuating this. You know, the Bible talks about gospel, and that's not specifically what I'm talking about, but it's that kind of idea that we need to be careful how we talk. And we, the three of us, need to be careful about how we talk about each other for sure, how we talk about you guys, right? Because if, if we start uh, getting on to, you know, Joe Elder candidate, for example, or, or whatever, and, and really kind of get negative about this person, we're, we're creating a, a story in our minds that there's something bad about this guy, and that's going to bleed out. Our wives are going to start believing that. People around us are going to start believing that. And pretty, pretty soon, this guy is going to be bearing the weight of us not being careful with how we talked. And so that's true for all of us. That's basic family stuff, right? You've got to be careful how you talk about your sister. It's basic family stuff that we just, we just need to know that it's, it's a little bit heightened when we come into a situation like this. Next week, we're going to be looking at <clears throat> what causes quarrels and what causes dissension in a church in our, in our next passage. But it often stems from how we speak, from how we speak. Yeah, so let's watch what we say.
Jesus takes good care of his church, and he takes very great pains to protect it. Let's flip over to Ephesians, if you would. Ephesians is a letter that, uh, a couple of books to your left. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church that Timothy is pastoring in 1 Timothy. So there are a lot of connections here. Right? Timothy was, was pastoring and he was responsible this, for this church in Ephesus. So Paul writes to Timothy, he writes the letter 1 Timothy. Gives him instructions, various instructions about Ephesians. And then he writes a letter to them. And I don't know when the time frame was exactly. Timothy may not have been the pastor here at this exact time. I don't know. But it's still the same congregation, the same people. And so if you, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, I want to close with this about, about how Christ views the church and about how protective he is of the church and about how he is working to sanctify his people. So let me read here. And I'll, this, is, this is in close, closing. Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what he's doing with us. And part of his means of doing that is through the selection and the governing of elders, through the preaching and teaching of the Bible in the church. And that's part of the means he's using to accomplish that. He's taken care of us. He's taken care of the church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and your, your goodness. Thank you for your, uh, your care for us. Certainly your care for us individually. You, you offer us salvation in Christ. You offer us forgiveness of sin in Christ that we can be reconciled in our relationship with you because of what Jesus did on the cross and bearing the penalty for my sin that I could be forgiven and be made right with you. Certainly you care for us personally. But I'm struck this week, Lord, with how you care for your congregations, for your church in general, that you would, that you would put people in positions of responsibility to preach and teach your word because it is your word to your people. That's a <clears throat> privilege and a responsibility. And it comes with a heightened degree of accountability. It comes also with a heightened degree of protection. Lord, you care for us. You care for Parkside. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our midst. I pray that you would work in our body in general, that we would love each other and that we would speak lovingly with one another and speak lovingly about one another. Lord, I pray that, that you would be lifted up and that we would be unified in following after you as a congregation, that we would be your sheep, that we would be um, following closely after you as a congregation. Thank you for your goodness, for your word and your spirit. Pray for your blessing on the remainder of the day. In Jesus' name.